Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to The Rook live on the Keys 107 Network. LLC is on the cutting edge of emerging technologies for designing online classes and providing face-to-face and virtual technology training or help with computer programs, web design, and graphic arts. We also provide biography writing services for websites. For more information, give us a call at 631-399-0149. That's 631-399-0149. The Fluffs present the alphabet. Now found in paperback, sporting a five-star rating on Amazon.com. Boom 107, fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Boom 107 is an online retail store featuring women's and men's clothing and the gift shop. The woman's shop features stylish tunics. to the Rook live on the Keys 107 Network. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Rook Show. Brandy, are you there? Yes. Welcome. Welcome. That's what's up. Uh, Pre-4th of July show. Will will 4th of July have come before the next show? I think we got got one more Sunday here. Okay, okay. So but I look, it, it sounds like it's it's coming real soon because I hear fireworks everywhere. <laughs> That's what's All up. of the illegal I want, fireworks. <laughs> I wanted to get the uh, commercials out of the way because we have a very special guest um, on the line waiting. We have a very special guest on the line waiting uh, for us all the way from Mariana, Arkansas. Um, I'm going to let you take the interview over. But I just wanted to introduce a very special individual to me, um, Igene Muhammad Sr. Brandy, uh, there you go. Mike is live as well. Okay. 
Ajeen Muhammad Sr., I would like to welcome you. How are you today, this Sunday? I'm fine, Brandon. How are you? I am fantastic because I get a chance to speak to you. <laughs> you have a lot to share with everyone that's listening out there today. And, uh, you know, it really goes along with the purpose of the Rook Show. But giving your experience, because, you know, we, we, we kind of coined the show A Few Good Men, and, and you are an excellent man, and wanted to get an idea of the outstanding background that you have. Now, you were a prison chaplain, and not only that, the first Muslim prison chaplain. Is that correct? Tell us a, li- tell us a little bit about that. That is outstanding. Uh, yes, uh, Brandy, I was the first uh, Muslim prison chaplain in the state of Illinois. Okay. Uh, by that, I don't, that, that doesn't mean I was the first one to teach in the prison, but I was the first one that was actually on staff. On staff, and how was how was that experience? How was that experience? Because when when you're when you're the first, you're setting new ground. What what went through your mind as far as how you would uh, conduct certain teachings, and uh, how you would relate to some of the inmates, or how how did that work for you? Brad, Uncle Idine, hold on one second before you go into that. I I want to know. You're not from Chicago, right? Or you're not from Illinois, are you? Not originally, uh, Anthony. I'm from Marianna, Arkansas. But, okay. Uh, you you didn't know I am actually back in Illinois at the present time, but I'm contemplating going back to Arkansas. My all of my children. Oh, are you in Illinois? Illinois? I'm in, in Illinois, Illinois right, right now. now. <laughs> how, how did you get into Illinois in order to be in a position? to be uh, selected for such an honorable position to be paid to practice uh, your, your religion within the, in, the, in the prison. How did you get from Arkansas to Illinois and then in a position like that to be able to work? Right. Well, I, I would try to capsulize it very quickly, uh, 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 Anthony, because otherwise it would be like a week. But uh, <laughs> I can't <laughs> I came to Illinois immediately, well, after one year of college. I graduated from high school in 1956. I went to Lemoyne College in Memphis for one year, and then I came to Illinois immediately after that. I got married that following January, January 17th, 1958. And from there, I started working at the post office. Uh, and while I was working at the post office, I went to school full-time and worked full-time. And I got my bachelor's degree in 1963 in education from Chicago State University, which was not a university at that time. It was Chicago State Teachers College. Mm. And from there, I started teaching school. Once I started teaching school, after about three years, I slowed down from working two jobs, and my mind opened up, and I began to see the the inequity in the educational system, and I began to fight the Board of Education, which consequently, in 1968, immediately after Dr. King was killed, I wound up in a, uh, uh, what do you say, a, Argument a long term. It was a it was really a war with the Chicago Board of Education. The one man against the Board of Education. I had a lot of people who were with me at first, but when they saw I was serious, they backed down. Ultimately, what happened was I wound up uh, so frustrated with the matter that I hit a man. And in, in uh, 1968 Memorial Weekend, Memorial Day Weekend, 1968, I spent in County Cook County Jail. I got fired from Chicago Teachers, uh, Chicago Public School System at that time. 
And from there, about, uh, let me just say, about two years later, I wound up uh, hearing the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And that's mm-hmm. how I came into the Nation of Islam, became one of his ministers and uh, under him until he passed away in 1975. And then when his son uh, resumed, uh, took the position of leadership of our community, uh, I was selected. I didn't know that chaplains got paid. I was selected to go. And the reason why I was selected to, to take the job was because uh, at one of the prisons, Pontiac Prison in Pontiac, Illinois, uh, they had denied Muslims who had had opportunities to have their services, all Muslim inmates, but they somehow decided, the warden decided to cut out their privileges altogether, and some inmates filed a lawsuit that mm. resulted in, this, in them trying to uh, placate that lawsuit and make the lawsuit moot. So they hired a, 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 a Muslim chaplain to try to placate the lawsuit. I didn't mm. work. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> My community selected me to go, and they 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 couldn't make any demands on what kind what kind of uh, background religious background uh, the Muslim chaplain had to have because you can't say what somebody else's religion dictates. So I had no clerical experience, you know, as for except uh, ministering in the, in the nation of Islam. But they said, well, he has to be a college graduate. That that mm-hmm. was what they established, and they were doing that because they figured if they got one that had a college degree, we taught him, we can handle him. But they right. couldn't help me. <laughs> they couldn't help <laughs> me. <laughs> okay. As a matter of fact, one of the things that they asked me soon after I became the chaplain at Stateville Prison, they said, uh, Gene, uh, what are those guys going to do about that lawsuit? And my response to them was, those are grown men. They had that lawsuit before I came here. I don't have anything to do with that. I'm just here to teach them their religion, and that lawsuit is not covered in my religion. So, mm. so. But that, that so it was a battle for me from almost day one when I didn't work out like I was I was supposed to be the house Negro that would come in and quiet these sealed Negroes down, make them drop their lawsuit. But instead, they wound up having to hire another Muslim chaplain uh, to go along with me because uh, the institution that filed the lawsuit, I was not hired there. That was 85 miles from my home, but they took me, my schedule and had me on loan to go to that institution on the prime days of our religion, Friday for Jumar prayer and Sunday to have a Tileem. But I was at Stateville Prison where they had a Caucasian chaplain that they thought could handle me. He was my supervisor. I wound up with his job before I retired. I mean, when I said with his job, I mean I was doing the job. I was the supervising chaplain. Wow. So you went in, and for the next the for the last five years, you ended up taking over as supervisor. That's right. For the last five years, I was a supervising chaplain. That means I was in charge of all the religious services that came to Stateville Prison. Mm. As far as scheduling them, and what I, nobody tells another religious group what they can teach except, you know, the government itself. But, I mean, no, I, so I didn't have the job. All I did was tell them which room they could have there, which part of the chapel they could have that meeting then, and what time, and kept the schedule like that, and their monthly reports were given to me. Okay. Wow. So um, in that experience, how how was it, I mean, compared to how many people were seeking, uh, you know, maybe like a Christian word versus a Muslim word? How many people converted? How how was that experience there? Let's not say converted. Let's say how many came to the meeting. How many? There you go. Yep. How many came to the meeting? <laughs> because... <laughs> 
there's a difference between how many came to the meeting and how many really how became many Muslim, all right? Yes, yes. Uh, we'd always have a chapel full of people because it was like a place of, of refuge for them. The gangbangers didn't bother you if you were affiliated with the Muslims. So that means they they get out of the otherwise if you came in the prison and you were not uh, uh, connected with any of them, then somebody's gonna recruit you. Most of them got turned out and made into you know their uh, sex their prison wives and that kind of thing. So the guys would come to Islam for that. All right, mm. yeah, but we had a lot of people, but only a few that I know of that have actually come out and really been successful. Uh, I, I point out a couple of success cases. We have uh, a presently uh, a professor at uh, Professor Musawir at uh, mm-hmm. Southern Illinois University. He was a product of our uh, religious activities. And we had another one. I'm not sure what his situation is. I haven't heard. But last I heard, he was a professor at uh, Indiana University Northwest, which is in Gary, Indiana. I haven't been in touch with him, but Musawi and I are Facebook friends, so I, I hear from him all the time. The other one was Salim Rashid, and I know he did have some health problems, so I'm not sure whether he's still alive or not. You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, uh, and then uh, a few others, you know, like uh, another young man who's down at uh, in uh, southern Illinois, so he's a businessman. And I relate his experience to you because he came back in the Joliet prison one day. He had been out. He came back, and he saw me, and he yelled. He was about 100 feet away from me. Hey, Eugene, long time no see. And he said, I don't remember the incident, but he said I told him. I know that I know this is true because that's why I tell any of them when they came back. He said I told him, My brother, if you're seeing me in here, it ain't been long enough. And from that, he never came back to prison again. He said that was enough to wake him up and realize how he was wasting his life. He now has a very successful business, uh, merchandising business in uh, in uh, uh, Carbondale, Illinois. He started off just street peddling with a bag on his back, and then he got a van. Also, he has a family, about four children. Oh, and so that's a real success story. Of course, Musawa has a family now also. Matter of fact, he's Musawa's granddaughter. So those would be the highlights, right? There's some others. We have a, a brother who is uh, uh, in the south suburb of Broadview, in Broadview, in Broadview, Illinois. Uh, he is a public accountant, CPA, and uh, he's from the system also. But I don't have, I wish we did have, but, you know, there's one thing that uh, we know uh, when it comes to the teaching of Islam, that is that none of us can make a Muslim. Oh. Only God. Only God. And if I slip and say Allah, I mean the same God that you know that created the heavens and the earth. Now, mm-hmm. Sometimes I may say Allah, but I, I, when I'm talking to people who are not uh, uh, in tune with uh, Islam, I'll say God. So, but I'm talking about the creator. Okay. The one creator who created everything. He said all the prophets, including Jesus. All right, so, mm. Okay. Right. That, so, so we don't have a separate God. That's the point I'm making. The language is different. The language is different, so we say things differently. But it's it's like someone saying good morning, another one saying how are you doing. They both are speaking. Right. But they, right. And, they, and they both are concerned. 
All right. Uncle, well, I'm glad you clarified that. That is that's good to know. Yeah, I know a lot of people. They probably didn't. They probably don't understand. You know some of that difference there. But I'm glad you did clarify that. Well, as long as I mention that too, Brandy, I'll give you a quote from the Holy Quran. The Holy Quran is the book that we use, like what you would say, our Bible. Okay. It is newer than the, than the Holy Bible. Uh, it refers to the Holy Bible, and it says of those who had who religions are older than ours. Ours is of the, or the younger of the three major religions, uh, which is uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. That's the young. Now there are others also have Buddhism and all that. But I don't know a lot about them, but I know they're old also. But here's what it says in the Quran, so that hopefully it will help others to understand that I don't espouse Islam like I'm greater than you or something. It says, whether you be Sabian, that's a religion that you don't know about, Christian, Muslim, or Jew, if you're a believer in God and a doer of good, your reward is with your Lord. Mm. So none of us have any special clout because we have to have a certain brand. And actually, Islam, if you understand what Islam is, if you are a good Muslim, then you are a good Christian. If you are a good Christian, you are a good Muslim. Because Islam simply means one who submits his will to the will of God. Now tell me how you're going to be a Christian if you don't submit your will to the will of God. Oh. So that that, that puts us together, right? As a matter, yes. of fact, matter of fact, we are so together until my wife, who's sitting here beside me right now, is Christian. Mm. And okay. She's the daughter. She's the daughter of uh, of the late uh, A. J. Frank, who was a great minister in Eastern Arkansas. Passed away in nineteen ninety one. Okay, so I, I do have to ask briefly: How do you um, how do you balance the two beliefs? If you could kind of wrap it up in a nutshell between uh, the, you, your wife, you and your wife. Let you. Glad you asked that question. We have something very special that we have coined interlocking faith. Oh, yeah. We didn't just make this up now. and I'm so glad you asked, because I would not have mentioned interlocking faith. Interlocking Here's what we do. Instead of focusing on those things that we do differently, we focus on those things that we have in common. Mm-hmm. All of us believe in truth. We believe in doing good. We believe in God. We believe in treating our fellow man right. We believe in treating ourselves right. Those are things that we believe in family life. We believe that a man should be a good husband, a wife should be a good wife. A man should be a good father to his children. Those things we all have in common. So if I say assalamu alaikum, and and she says good morning, which she doesn't, she says assalamu alaikum also because she knows the beautiful meaning of that. But if I say Aslam Alaikum and she said good morning, I don't get mad and slap her because she said good morning. Right. <laughs> As a matter of fact, she, she's of such a character until I, I would question whether or not it would be valuable to slap her in any circumstances and explain no. expect <laughs> to remain wealthy myself. Right. <laughs> so interlocking faith. Interlocking this is the first faith. time I've gotten a chance to. Mm-hmm. I think that, that is, that's the first time that's been introduced to anyone other than us between the two of us. Interlocking faith is what we call it. Wow. 
Well, that goes that goes to show you. You know, as far as love, you can you can definitely find it, and as long as you have the communication and the agreement and the commonality, is it's okay. And I'm I'm so glad to have discovered that because I've always wondered. You know, because sometimes people um, they discriminate who they would be with. You know, I'm not going to yeah. be with that type of person. Up, oh, I'm not even going to consider a dating. You know, right? That's right. And you just don't know who uh, God has maybe as an option for your life as a partner. That's right. That's right. Brandy, let, me, let me interrupt. Let me interrupt for one second. I, I, I want a question. I, I have a question because you mentioned in dates. And um, I study history. Some of the dates mm-hmm. that you mentioned when you started working in the prison, it was some very serious individuals uh, running around Chicago who I'm sure came into the prison system at that time. If, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you know, there were some very serious individuals who came through there. With you and your wife having this uh, compromise with the religion, I'm sure you were very much involved in some of the things that went on inside the prison to keep the peace uh, during those times when those serious individuals were coming through there, how were you, or if you had anything to do with able to manage those types of situations back then? Well, if, you, if you're being more specific, I can speak directly to it, but let me explain this to you now. Uh, my present wife was not my wife at that time. That wife has passed away. She passed away right. in 2000. But okay. if it be, be a little more specific, you may not, you may not want to call names, but if you could call the organizational names or something like that, I could relate to it, you know. And the reason okay. why I say that is because uh, some of the, Go ahead. Right. I don't want to call names, but I'll say uh, for those who, who are familiar with the term, the original 21, that was around the time when you were in the prison. Yeah. Am okay. I right or am I wrong? Yeah. Okay. I know exactly where you are now. Yes, I know exactly where you are. Those were some of my best friends. As you know, those brothers uh, uh, later became what they call uh, 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 Rukins and then uh, uh, more science, uh, which is also a branch of uh, Islam. So uh, one of my very best earliest friends, was, he was the only one in that organization that was a colonel, and he gave me a book uh, that I still have. I tried to give it back to him after he... His uh, sentence got commuted. He was on death row. And I used to go by and visit him every morning before I went to my office. And he gave me a little book called As a Man Thinking by James Allen. He had, his, he had a hardback copy of it that would fit into my vest pocket. And so once he got commuted, uh, uh, got his sentence commuted, and he was back out in the population, I tried to give it back to him. He said, no, 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 brother, that's yours. I gave it to you, you know. But so those are some of my very best friends. I didn't try to impose anything on them, but before I left, they were praying right with us, making no distinction between as far as the services were concerned. Uh, so, but now the, the leader of the organization, I was not a leader. Not, fine. I'm sorry, I didn't understand. No, go ahead. You said the leader. You never. I never. I never actually. I met didn't. Him. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I never, never uh, met the the leader. Uh, while I was while uh, I was working in the prison, I had met him before I started working in the prison, you know. But he was never uh, uh, 
incarcerated where I was. Matter of fact, he's in federal prison as far as I know now. But the the because of the attitude, I, I even had uh, some brothers who uh, identified with us and never stopped being, never stopped saying they were Christian. But they identified with us. They would even fast with us during Ramadan and continue going to their uh, Christian services. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that particular group mm-hmm. that you're referring to there, the main 21, some of those brothers I knew, uh, matter of fact, one, uh, 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 I can mention him now because he's passed away. His name was Rico, Rico uh, Crenshaw. And uh, mm-hmm. I remember when I used even before even before I, uh, before I uh, got the job as chaplain, I was a volunteer in the county jail, and he was out there, and he used to would make the brothers you can continue. You don't have to listen to the to what the minister call what he called the minister. You don't have to listen to what the minister's saying, but don't interrupt him. Don't disturb him. Say you don't play cards. Just don't slap your cards. That's what he. And so they would. They said over there. They, if they weren't, they, because he, he understood uh, something that a lot of people don't understand, and that there is no compulsion in religion. Uh, that's what our religion, our Quran teaches us. Like Iqra have fifteen, that there be no compulsion in religion. So explain he that. Explain what you mean with no compulsion. I mean, you don't make anybody do things. Just like, just like I just got through missing about my wife. It would be oh, a violation okay. of my religion for me to try to make her be a Muslim. You mm-hmm. want to be my wife? You got to be a Muslim. That would be violating the religion right there. So well, what do you think about? Uh, I, I know I'm shifting a little bit. That, that's a good point. So, what do you think about uh, people who? Uh, because you do have your extreme uh, individual. Yeah, I know where you're going, goes, Yep. <laughs> And I'm ready to speak to that. Okay. Uh, if, if you'll allow me, we have millions of people who say they are Muslims today that know very little about their religion. Okay. They are just going along with the go along. All right? Mm-hmm. I'll give you one example to show you uh, before I get into the rest of it. Okay. I had a Muslim chaplain that worked at Stateville Prison after I became the, the senior chaplain. And... I was explaining that he was born in Pakistan. I was explaining things to him from the Holy Quran, not from the English translation, but from the Arabic it, itself. And I explained when I explained things to him, he couldn't argue with me. He told, you know what he told me? Now, he's a Muslim. I'm a Muslim. We both work in the same. He said, brother, we can't talk about religion. So we can talk about the cooks. We can talk about the, the bears. We can talk about uh, white socks. Yeah, but we can't talk about religion because he never studied. He mm-hmm. has never studied. He just goes on whatever his daddy said before him, his great-granddaddy. They don't research. They don't study. And that's one of the biggest problems in religion today. People mm. don't stop. I'm, I'm not talking about just Christianity. I'm not just Islam. I'm talking about Christianity oh, also. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we, we don't study. We do, do so. We rely on something that I call uh, uh, CPCSB. So this is the first time this you 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 can you can uh give your your show credit for this Anthony. This is the first time this phrase has ever been expressed. I give it to you again and then I tell you what the what the initials stand for. C P C S B. C P stands for catchphrases. Oh cliche uh the other C stands for cliches. And the last S B stands for sound bites. Most of our religious teachers today depend upon catchphrases, cliches, and sound bites. They're not really teaching the religion and neither other people listening to the religion. They they just little, little convenient things that they can say in response to this and they don't and they don't respond to it in themselves, meaning they don't try to live it out. 
I hope that you can follow what I'm saying there. I follow. Catchphrases. This is real catch. I can say this. I can say this. Uh, for instance, in Islam, Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah means the praises for God, the praises for the Creator. They mm-hmm. say that. They say that, and then they're looking for praise for themselves. Oh. <laughs> well, if the praise is for God, what's left for you? Wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and uh, and that's, that's one of the earliest uh, phrases that the Muslim learns about when he learns to pray. He says, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. And then he says, Alhamdulillah. The praise is for Allah. That's the second after he learns Bismillah, which is with God's name, the merciful benefactor, the merciful redeemer. The next thing he says, and that's every Muslim. We all pray the same way for the first part of the prayer. We don't pray like other people. For we can pray, and we, uh, but that's not our formal prayer. We can pray asking God for whatever we want. But for our formal prayer that's, had, that's timed, uh, five daily prayers that's timed, he states, that's called Salah. And everyone who prays those prayers is to recite that, that uh, phrase I just said. As a matter of fact, we begin with the Al-Fatiha. That's what it's called. And that, that, that phrase in there, we say, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Then we say, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. So if the praise is for God, that would saw, if, we, if the world subs- would subscribe to that, couldn't be no war. Couldn't be no disagreement. Couldn't Why? Be because ain't nobody looking for praise. Mm. It all belongs to God. Mm. I'll, let, I'll let you digest that one, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> brother told me the other day, he said, Brother, last night it was Friday, in Gary and then, he said, Brother, we we appreciate your knowledge. I said, it's not mine. It belongs to Allah. I don't take and credit for anything. It belongs to Allah. And you're be, you're you're being of service. You're you're being of service. Mm-hmm. I'm obligated to. Mm-hmm. Brandon, if I didn't share what God has blessed me with, I know I would go to hell when I die. Mm-hmm. So I'm as busy as I can be. That's where you notice I didn't give you any argument about it, uh, Anthony, when you want me on the show. I'm obligated. And I don't have mm-hmm. the right to copyright anything. All of it belongs to Allah. All of it belongs to Allah. Listen to that. Mm-hmm. You see. Yeah, yes, I, I appreciate you, you know, yeah. taking time out to come on to the show. <laughs> I appreciate coming on to the show. You 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 always have represented a teacher from the very first time I met you uh, down there on the land when you was doing your chicken farm and you told me you might learn yeah. something. <laughs> you, you might learn something if you stick around long enough to. So I'm I'm still around trying to learn something. And you know, if you hadn't mentioned that answer, I had forgotten about that. I mean, I had forgotten when and where I met you. But I remember that mm-hmm. was the first year I came to Arkansas. Matter of fact, I, I raised about a thousand chickens that year. Chicken farm, mm-hmm. a thousand yeah, chickens. Well, yeah, well, my brother it wasn't. It wasn't my farm land, and my brother Ollie, uh, judge, he's a retired appellate court judge, and he's the one that had the farmland, and he allowed me to use it, use his house and everything. So I was staying in his house when I first went to Arkansas. Went back to Arkansas uh, in two thousand one where I served as the Islamic coordinator for the Arkansas Department of Correction. But, yeah, I remember that now, Anthony, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
before Brandy goes into a, a, another direction with her question, I want to know a little bit more about Chicago. If you go back a little bit, you was around during a time when Harold Washington was the mayor of Chicago. Um, yeah. What what type of memories do you have about that era? Yes, uh, and, yeah. Of course, I was already working in the prison at that time when he uh, got to be mayor. But I had always admired uh, uh, Harold Washington because he was so fluent in the language. And then he was, but he wasn't. Uh, 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 what you say? Uh, one of those sophisticated characters who talked out of the side of his neck. He could take uh, take take the language, beat him up with the language, and then turn around and tell him, "Now, if you don't like that, meet me outside. I give you a knuckle sandwich." <laughs> hmm. He seemed like so, that. Yes. You know what I call a well balanced. You know, sometimes we get our so-called education, and then we get so arrogant we start talking out of the side of our neck and all that stuff. You know. But he was he was not that kind of a person. It was he was. He was a, uh, a down-to-earth person. You know, I, I did get a chance to meet him personally before he became mayor. As a matter of fact, while he was a representative in the state of Illinois, I had the privilege of meeting him. But uh, those 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 times haven't changed much, Anthony. They, they just put a different flavor on it and put it in a different cup. But the discrimination and things that I talked about, I got into back in the 60s when I first started teaching school. They are still going on. They just matter of fact, you remember that uh, that mm-hmm. uh, question I put on uh, uh, on uh, tag uh, uh, concerning your show. I asked the question: Is the criminal justice system a plan for perpetual slavery? I don't know whether we're going to have time to deal with that today or not. But if we do, oh, yes. I <laughs> have an opportunity to do so. Right. But yes, they, it hasn't changed that much. They've just changed the flavor. Mm-hmm. And until until we begin to recognize. Uh, what will be covered under that question? We will still be in slavery. We are in slavery now and don't even know it. We are We're in slavery way. now and we don't we know it. We are in slavery now. The only thing is now, you know, back in what we call the slave era, that was uh, was the people of African descent. Now the majority of the people, period, are in slavery. And, but the way they do it, they dis, uh, dispense it out into something that's called salaries. But watch what's happening. You're just, you just, just barely keeping your head above water. You just make it. Just make it. And that's for the majority of the people. So everybody's really just working just to stay alive. I ask you a question. My mouth is what just fell. What is it in a house? What do you tell me what is in a house? I'm talking about a dwelling that require taking 30 years to pay for it. Right. <laughs> the system is designed. It's designed to keep you in slavery, keep you hustling. That is the essence of what they call uh, the capitalistic system. It's designed to keep everybody hustling. If you actually had the fruits of your labor, well, you'd be able to retire at 30 years old. Right. You'd, yes. You'd be, why? Because you, your productivity would be, the way they do it now, they keep giving you raises, but they keep taking it back. I, I heard some of my wife told me she saw mm-hmm. something she saw it on Facebook where somebody said they wish that uh, that the dollar store would start selling gas. <laughs> oh yes, the dollar store. Oh, oh, see, they will rack up. They, they Every time you want a dollar a gallon for the gas. I like that. <laughs> so listen, I was in I was in Gary Friday, and I found gas 
for three dollars and fifty two cents and I was bragging about it. And I said to myself, Well, what kind of fool are you because everywhere else it was three eighty nine and all of that and I found it for three fifty two. And here I am and I remember when gas was nineteen cents a gallon. All right. When I came to Chicago in nineteen fifty seven there was a modern station right there, sixty six and State Street that had gas for nineteen cents a gallon. What? <laughs> So that's how it's done. That's how I'm trying to make that point. Listen, that's how the slavery system. Uh, you know, so we're comfortable. You know, we have uh, king size beds and, and memory foam mattresses and everything. But our our contribution is still that of a slave. What was the slave supposed to do? Produce for his master, for the benefit of his master. And if you had to make the slave more comfortable in order to do that, then that's what they have done. So well, we can make it more comfortable. Hmm. <laughs> So instead of being born into sin, we're born into slavery again. <laughs> wow, this is that's right. And what about the youth? The what about, what the, about youth? the youth? Yeah, I mean, how can they? You know, how can they overcome this? Well, the the uh, the this the path for overcoming this is in something that I heard from a, a old man a long time ago. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you who he is. I hope people don't. Rejected just because I say his name. His name was Elijah Muhammad. He was the founder of the nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. And he had a saying. He said, the slave will never be free until he learns the language of his master. There we go. Now, he, he didn't mean speak the words, say the uh, mouth the words. How many times have you heard babies say things that they didn't know? You know they didn't know what they were talking about. They just <laughs> imitating what they heard somebody else say. That's true. Uh, imagine a people. I'm talking about the, the population, the masters of the population of the United States babbling and don't know what they're talking about. And to some degree, we know this. For instance, the average one of us, if we get a complicated situation, where, and it's, we have it in writing, when we look at it, where's the shoes? i got to see a lawyer about this. Mm-hmm. Meaning what? I don't know the language. Mm-hmm. I can't handle this. It's too big for me. I've got to get somebody specially equipped to handle this. So the language is in knowing, I think I mentioned to you uh, once before when we were talking, Brandy, mm-hmm. if I say it, but I haven't mentioned it to Anthony, if I say to you, Anthony, Anthony, you're a nice brother, how would you feel about that? Anthony, are you still there? How would you feel about yes, that, Anthony, yes, yes. if he I mean, said you were a nice brother? If I said you were nice. Seeing as that, seeing as though you know me, I, I will feel proud because I know you're telling the truth. All right, Anthony, I hate to embarrass you. <laughs> <laughs> but when we get off of this show, you get you a good dictionary and look up the word nice, N-I-C-E. Before you start looking at the definitions, because the definitions don't say something that would complement what you just said. Before you look at the definition, look in the brackets after. That's called the etymology. Mm-hmm. And look at the history of that word. It comes from two Latin words, nisus and siri, S-C-I-R-E. Nisus means not. Siri means to know. So when I say you're nice, I'm really saying you're ignorant. Mm. Now, if you reflect on when you hear people use that word, see don't they use it in a condescending manner. I mean, they're talking about people who are below them in their status. A good mm-hmm. or a nice employee, that kind of... You don't refer to okay. your su- superiors. You see what I'm talking about? 
Mm-hmm. So they, and even though they're not, they're not consciously aware. They're not consciously aware that they're speaking down to you. But in mm-hmm. essence, it's still there. Hmm. Then I'm not embarrassed That's, at all. Keep, keep on teaching. Keep on teaching. <laughs> Consider yourself being another step uh, towards a high education. All right. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, in the language of any people, is the message. First of all, is the is the the uh, description of the people, and it's it also contains their success. The pattern of their success. I say this to you: uh, success is not as elusive as we think it is. We think because this kind of gets to the question about uh, what Brandy is asking about uh, uh, the youth. Mm-hmm. Success is in a different package than what we're we're looking for success in dressed up packages. And it's really in a can. Hmm. Yes, I can do this. Yes, I can do that. Yes, I can do this. Yes, I can. Can. (laughs) That's what success is in a can, all right? Not in a box. Not wrapped up in in gift wrap paper. It's not in in a, uh, 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 you're not even in a uh, uh, wad of money. It's Mm -hmm. in can. Yes, I can. All right. Yes, I can. I know I can. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I have. Uh, I spent most of my career uh, as a chaplain uh, dealing with the the Arabic language, and I point okay. that out to you because it is an obliga- obligation upon all Muslims, although they don't fulfill that obligation but it's an obligation upon all Muslims to learn to read the Quran in Arabic. It doesn't say you have to speak Arabic. As a matter of fact, I'm not conversing in Arabic today, but I can understand what they're saying. I don't, know, I don't even try to hold conversations with Arabic-speaking people, but I know what they're saying. I, I can follow along closely with what they're saying, and I can read the Quran in Arabic. And the reason why is because the Arabic, the way the Arabic language is structured is just what I just mentioned to you, about the word nice. In order to understand a word in Arabic, you have to know its root meaning. As a matter of fact, you can't even look a word up in an Arabic dictionary until you determine what is the root of that word. That's that the word's not listed in alphabetical order, per se. The root words are in alphabetical order, but the word may may start with a different word from the root word. For instance, the word Muslim. You won't find it. Well, I'm going to use uh, English names for the letters now. The letter for the first letter in the, in the word Muslim is called Mim, but I'm going to say him. So okay. you look on the M in Arabic, you will not find Muslim because it comes from a word that starts with an S, Salimah. Oh. So you have to go to Salimah to find Muslim. And then, of course, the Mu, once you start studying the language, and you find out that there are certain prefixes, uh, that uh, tell you something about the language, uh, certain suffixes that tell you about the words, certain suffixes that tell you what has been done to that word. And then in Arabic, we have something else that you don't have in English, and that's called infixes. Do so we have prefixes, infixes, and suffixes? A prefix is that part that's been added to a word before you get to a single root letter of the word. Then the infix is uh, uh, whatever is added between the first and second root letter or the second and third root letter, because most of your root words are three-letter words. Not all of them, but most of them are three-letter words. And then the suffix is that which is added after 
the last letter of the word. So take that word, little slim now, and then move that letter mean or M, it can be used with two, I'm sorry, with three different sounds. It can be mu, ma, or mi. If it's mu, then that means it's a person. If it's ma, it means it's a place. If it's me, it means it's a thing. So that's not just what the word we're talking about. I'm going to go on with Muslim and Sally man, but that, that, that's for when you add that prefix to any word, that's going to stand true. All right? Okay. Now, this is what Arabic teachers don't teach. They simply teach you how to say the thing and what they say it means, and that's it. So my Arabic is, is a, a different approach. As a matter of fact, I gave you the name for it, uh, Brandon, when we talked earlier. And I, t- I just gave you an Arabic, uh, I mean, gave you the English uh, term I told you, syllabication. But actually, yeah. the Arabic, the Arabic word for my, word, the Arabic phrase for my uh, particular uh, technique of teaching is called Ilmul Ishtikak. Ilmul Ishtikak. Ilmul means science or knowledge of. Ishtikak is referring to the the, the root, the root uh, of the word, the, the uh, etymology, the history of the word, all right? So that's how I teach the language, by going to the history of the word. Now, let's get back to Muslim, okay? Mu is a person. I'm sure you can agree with me now, at least, right? And by the way, that's what all any language is, is agreement between the users. Wow. No words in any language have any meaning unless it is agreed upon between the users of that language. I'll give you a good example, and then I'm going to get back to Muslim. I'll give you a good example. Mm-hmm. Just a few years ago in my lifetime, if someone said to me, what's up? I would look above me and tell them. If I was inside, I said, well, there's a student up there, and there's, some, there's a light fixture. Well, but in my early days, there was no light fixture because we had lamp light down in Arkansas. All right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's when you know, I start talking about what's above me. Now somebody says, what's up? It's a whole different thing. Why? Because we've agreed that it's a greeting. We didn't sit down around a round table. It just became a collective agreement. It was first agreed upon among African Americans, and now you'll hardly meet a sociable Caucasian speaking to an African American without him saying, what's up? That's a, mm. that's agreement. That's agreement. Yet that, 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 that uh, phrase is an inquiry about that which is above your head. Now we use it as if we're saying good morning or good afternoon. Exactly. Now let's get back to the word Muslim now, and then I'm going to let you ask me some questions if you like to. Okay. The move is a person, and the root word is Salimah, because I'm going to show you what the reason why I'm doing this, because I hope, I'm hoping some Muslims are listening, because most Muslims don't know who they are themselves. Ooh. They they take their, their little dictionary definition that's given to them without researching the word. So the dictionary definition I gave you earlier said a Muslim is one who submits his will to the will of God, or to the will of Allah. That's what most people are satisfied with. And it's not wrong. It's what I call underdefined, or as uh, as another word that we know in economics, that, yeah, he has, he has a job, but he's underemployed. I mean, he's, he's got a job, but he's not making enough money. All right? So, Whoa. Yes. <laughs> So most of, most of the language that we're using, even the Muslims, is underdefined. So I'm going to give you a full definition. I was going to say that I say a fuller definition. Well, I won't say a full definition because okay. Allah alone is the one who knows everything. 
But I'm going to give you a definition that's much fuller than what the average Muslim knows. So instead of saying a Muslim is one who submits his will to the will of God, which is not wrong, we can get a fuller definition by saying, by going to the report. One of the meanings of Salimah is to make peace. But uh, there's another meaning that is the first meaning. It's the, you know, you have, you have different meanings, and one will be the language right, first the meaning, first. second meaning. Well, the mm-hmm. first meaning is to escape from danger. Jeez, yeah. He escaped from danger. Now, I want to show you how they're not wrong to say, submit your will to the will of God. How else are you going to escape from danger? <laughs> Yes, he submits his will to the will of God, and that's how he is, how he becomes safe. 
you can't be saved if somebody, or you can't even surrender your will to the will of God. If somebody is chasing you with a, a, a block or a nine millimeter, you got to get out, out, out of danger from there first. Then you can wash your skin. You say, oh, I'm really not. Praise be to Allah. Praise but as long as that, as long as that wisdom is still faithful, mm-hmm. you have you don't have any safety, you don't have any peace. You can't have peace while somebody's about to kill you. That is something. Mm-hmm. And so you 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 have this the energy of a spirit, uh, you know, a teacher, a strong teacher. When did you begin to teach? And um, you know, what have you learned from teaching? Well, Brandy. I have been, and I wasn't wasn't like I, I declared I want to be a teacher as a profession, but as a child, my mother was my first teacher down in Arkansas, a little uh, uh, three, well, actually two rooms. There was three rooms, but one of the, we didn't have three teachers. We only had two teachers. So we used the other room to play in when when uh, it was raining. And she was my teacher, and she taught us how to tell me how to write my name. And I remember as soon as I got that together, she was, well, print my name, you know, writing in, in manuscript. As soon as I got that together, I started connecting it. I would take it, take my my name and connect those letters. And then I showed others how to do it. I got a whipping for doing it. And in other words, I started, the point I'm making is I started teaching while I was yet in kindergarten. I always wanted to say, I was, they looked at, look at my name, how'd you do that? I'll show them how to take your name and mark and put a mark there, put a mark there. And then we had writing. We were writing already. And my mother found out I was doing it, and she whipped me. <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> So that's that's how long I had wanted to be a teacher. Then when I started, when I came to Chicago, when I started working at the post office, I went back to school, and people who were working at night with me, they they, they found out I was going. What you going to school for? I said to be a teacher. Why oh, do you want to be a teacher? You make more money at the post office than you do as a teacher. And at that time we were. When you considered our four year salary and the two months of teaching, wow, we were making more money than teachers. I said I'm going because that's what I want to do. So it wasn't a matter of the salary. As a matter of fact, when I started teaching, I had to stay at the post office for another three years before I could manage uh, on the salary. Mm. But that was what I – and so once I once I got into the chaplaincy, then I just continued teaching, and I will teach until, the, inshallah, until my last breath. I'll be sharing what Allah has – what God has blessed me with because that's my obligation. But that's so that's been my calling since I can remember myself as a little child. With whatever I knew I wanted to share it. Mm-hmm. And for like for the, the, the little class that I just gave in Arabic, I do those classes now and I don't charge anybody. Anybody who wants to come can come and they're on YouTube. Anybody wants to wants to see them on YouTube, catch up with what we're doing. I do the class once each month on the first Sunday of the month. You can go to YouTube, you Google uh, uh, Moscares, M-O-S-Q-U-E-C-A-R-E-S. You Google that, and there's a lot of things on that page. But you go to what it's called, they have a little tab on the left that says First Sunday. You want to go to the First Sunday, and then when this First Sunday opens up, you'll see where Ajin Muhammad is teaching Arabic. There are other things other than me there, but that's where you can, you can get that information. So I share okay. it freely. Can you repeat that? Can you repeat that again? We have about five more minutes left before we have to go into our next segment. But I want you to repeat that information and any other uh, information that you would like to share with the listening audience to um, for them to get in contact with you or to receive any other blessings that you have to bestow as far as history or knowledge that you would like to share. All right. Well, the the uh, 
the website is called Mosque, M-O-S-Q-U-E, CARES, C-A-R-E-S. When you Google that, that page comes up. You will see tabs. One of the things that they like to have special events, but you want to go on the tab that says First Sundays. It's spelled First Sundays, S-U-N-D-A-Y-S. And once you click on that, it will open up and you will find me not before. If you click on it, there will be many First Sundays on there. If you click on anything before the first Sunday in December, I will not be on it. I only started this program on the first Sunday in December 2012, okay? And, but it's ongoing. And so uh, as long as Allah blesses me with the strength, I will continue to share it and I'm happy to do so. Beautiful. So if there's anyone that has uh, any questions right now before he goes, uh, we have the phone number 213-943-3618 for the Rook Show. Feel free to call in. And your hosts, Anthony King and Brandy Jackson, myself. I um. Absolutely, Brandy. I want to I want to bring um, his nephew on the line because I don't want to cut into his time. But I I, I just I'm not sure if they have spoken with each other in a long time or what. But four zero four five nine three, your your mic is live uh, for the next two minutes while uh, I'm I'm going to get out of his way. I haven't spoken to him in a while. I do keep up with him on Facebook. But uh, Lutalo, as he's known on Facebook. Uh, Lou, you know me, but his name is Lutala Olutasen, and uh, I haven't talked to him in quite a while. <laughs> welcome, welcome, Lou. Thank you. Am I am I live? Yes. Welcome to the yes, Rick Show. <laughs> and thank, thank you so much. much. No, my thanks to, is to you, and I have to say to my uncle who's uh, leaving and preceding me, it's always a pleasure. You've always been a very enlightening force for not only me, but I think anybody who's anywhere close to your path, you that you just have that radiance that you, you share such knowledge. So keep doing what you're doing, and I know what you will. Blessings right. to each other. Thank you, Lou, but we know where the praise go, right? The praise is for yes, the praise. So yes, I'm going to mute my phone now, but I'll, I'll be listening to the program. Okay, thank you very much. We're going to go to a quick commercial break, and uh, I I appreciate you doing this more than you know. This is more of a blessing than I imagined it would be, and um, I'm glad that you're closer than I thought you were. I will be in touch with you. I have the number, and and I will use it, um, especially now that I know you're this close by. All right. Thank you very much, Okay, no problem. Talk to you soon. Hold hold, hold the line so that... uh, so that you can hear the second half of the uh, show. Uh, that would that would mean a lot to me if you listen then, I'm sure. Oh, yes, uh, I'm going to listen. I'm just, I'm just going to mute my phone, but I'll be listening. Oh, I got you. I, I, I'm muting I'm you out right now as we go into commercial break. Thank you once again. All right. All right. Keys 107 and the FOI Board of Directors is proud to present The Final Call. The Final Call is the country's unique leading source for news. Founded by the Honorable Louis Farrakhan, National Representative of the Most Honorable Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam, The Final Call follows in the tradition of Muhammad's speaks with hard-hitting national and international news and coverage of political issues. It is the official communications organ of the Nation of Islam. 
Founded in the 1930s as the final call to Islam, the newspaper evolved into Muhammad Speaks in the 1960s and boasted a circulation of 900,000 a week with monthly circulation of 2.5 million. Today, the Final Call newspaper serves a readership of diverse economic and educational backgrounds, including circulation in North America, Europe, Africa, and the Caribbean. Read the Final Call newspaper. You can find one of the beautifully bow-tied representatives in your community or read FinalCall.com. Okay, we are back. How's everybody doing? We got Anthony on the line, Sweet Lou. Um, I'm bringing them in now. I'm I'm bringing them in now. I'm bringing them in now. There you go. There you go. Okay. So, yes, I just want to welcome you in, Sweet Lou. (laughs) Thank you you so much. I appreciate the welcome and, and really have been enjoying the show so far. Excellent. And I actually wanted to uh, start off because your name is uh, very powerful. So your birth name, and I want to make sure I pronounce it correctly, and it is Lutalo Alatusen. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, Lutalo Alatusen. That is my legal asking given name. Correct. Okay. And kind of give everybody uh, an understanding of how that name uh, was given to you and where it originated from. That's beautiful. Okay, well, uh, my name is Nigerian, um, and uh, I'll give you the uh, meaning. Lutalo means warrior, and, well, let me give you my full name. Lutalo Olutunde Olutosin. Lutalo means warrior. Olutunde means honor has come, and Olutosin means God is worthy of praise. Um, And, uh, again, it's really something to ascribe to every day that I, that I wake up. You know, I, just knowing that I have a name like that tells me that I can just go out there doing any old thing and being any old kind of person because it's right. kind of predestined that I have to act honorably and I am supposed to represent God in those things that I do. Exactly. And see... So who actually who actually named you? Actually, my my name was given to me um, through my church. Uh, I'm a member of the Pan African Orthodox Christian Church, and as a part of uh, membership, there, uh, well, first let me say a little bit about the Pan African Orthodox Christian Church. Very okay. strong connection to the African origin of Christianity, which is something that most people miss because. And, and part of the reason we missed it is, is because we don't study. We take many things at face value, um, religion included, and we take it and we run with it, and we never dig into how we got to where we are today. Christianity is the same way. There are, and and it, I could have a whole conversation with you probably for days just on this topic, but in truth, Christianity is an African religion and mm. we know we know this for several reasons but one of the things that we do also know is that Jesus who Christianity was made after the life of was an African and not a European but that's probably a conversation for another day but the point being 
the reason that the Pan-African Orthodox Christian Church connects so strongly with the African side of Christianity is because that's where the truth actually lays. So my membership in the Pan-African Orthodox Christian Church is kind of a reflection of that uh, belief that, yes, Christianity, wonderful religion, but it is not necessarily what most people know it as. There's another side to, to that coin. So challenging, basically, um, here you can challenge your belief system, the average belief system. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, and I, think, I think one would be wise to do just that because taking things just because someone said them doesn't necessarily put you where you ought to be. I personally believe that we should seek truth wherever it takes us. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily leave you in a place that you're very comfortable with or in a place that every, you're going to have mounds of people, thousands of people around you. But, you know, there, there are passages in the Bible and most other um, religious writings that tell you the, the way that leads to truth is narrow and it's traveled by very few people. But the way that leads to destruction is traveled by many people. So, oh. And speaking yeah. truth, you know, you will often find yourself alone. Alone. Or at least not, you know, there's not very many people walking on that path with you, and that's okay. So, you know, don't don't be discouraged because of that. Mm. It, it, it's okay. I, I'm, I'm glad you said that because a lot of people, I don't, I don't know if anyone is listening now or anyone that's on the line now have ever had a point in their life well, they did feel alone. It's like the more knowledge you gain, you you try to share it with others, and they, oh yeah, I guess, and the conversation is dead. <laughs> and you're like, oh, wow, yeah. am and, I alone in this? <laughs> yeah, you know that you, you, that's a very valid point. And and what's happening most, I won't say most times, but oftentimes is the truth challenges what people have accepted as reality, and what people accept as reality causes them to build their lives based on a paradigm that is, is a part of that reality. So once you've accepted something as truth, you then start to take and build your life based on that. And to find to, to challenge that would mean that everything that you've done up until that point is no longer valid. You know, it, it, which is kind of, it's, a, it's a scary point to be in if you've built lives and, you know, education and families and everything else based on a premise that is no longer valid because of what you know. But it's kind of like the, you know, once you learn something, you can't unlearn it. Once you ring a bell, you can't unring it. So, it, it, you know, once you step through that door, it's almost as if you can't turn around and walk back because now you have knowledge that has to be reckoned with in one way or another. So it's easier not to accept the knowledge and hold on to the uh, paradigms and the lifestyles and the belief systems that you already have because that's comfortable. Mm. Hmm. That's that's really interesting. I, I want to know how long have you been involved in this religion? How how were you introduced to it? Because this is my first time hearing about it. I I, I was aware that you had some position 
you know, that you had taken some type of a, a, a religious position, but I did, I was unaware of what it was. When did you become, um, repeat the name of the religion again? I'm, I'm a member of the Pan-African Orthodox Christian Church. And I came to okay. be, okay. be that um, back in the early 90s, and it's it kind of a, a part of the evolution, if you will, of someone on a quest. Um, I was a member of the Atlanta Police Department and, uh, you know, working in the southwest side of Atlanta, you know, fairly, you know, rough neighborhood. They and call it I the noticed SWAT. That there was, they call it the SWAT exactly. area. Okay. Exactly, the SWAT. So um, I noticed <laughs> that, you know, while I'm working my shifts 11 to 7, that uh, there was this one particular area that um, people – whenever there was someone breaking into a house or breaking into a business or whatever, we would get calls ahead of time. And uh, the caller would always stay on the phone and, you know, help give directions and say, hey, he's going in through the back door or something doesn't look right or whatever. So I noticed that the calls were coming from this particular area, this particular uh, two or three block radius. And it, it happened, it so happened that, the uh, reports were coming from the security guards that were working for the Pan African Orthodox Christian Church. So I'd, um, I I rolled up and I, one day and I talked with one of the guys after you know answering a call and I think we had locked up a burglar and you know sent him to jail. But I was curious from that point on because the security guard was you know adamant that you know we don't want this kind of activity in our community. So I talked with him and. Uh, Asked him, so what do you guys really do? What What's your role here? And, and he, you know, started to tell me, he said, well, we own these blocks here, and we own all the property, excuse me, or the majority of the property in, in this area. And it's, it's not necessarily that we're going to wait and call the police and expect that you're going to secure our property for us, but we know that we're a part of the community, and we need you, but you need us. So we are patrolling our own area, and when something looks wrong, we're going to give you a call. And that's what was happening. Um, I said, so, well, tell me a little bit more. He said, well, we're a church. We're the Pan-African Orthodox Christian Church. I was like, so what does that mean? And he said, well, we believe in the African origins of Christianity. You should come to service on Sunday and sit in and have and enjoy fellowship with us. So... I took it out. I was kind of like, you know, what you mentioned earlier, Brandy, about, well, I don't know what that belief means, so maybe uh, I'd like to come at some time, but just not now. As it turned out, there was was several years later that I actually attended a service. Um, And when I attended that service, I was convicted. I was was literally, the, the preacher was saying everything that I felt in that it's really important for you to work on what you believe. And he talked to, about the uh, passage in the Bible that says, faith without works is dead. And that has always stayed with me because, you know, lots of people say they believe. Lots of people say I have faith. But not a lot of people put work behind that faith. And it's almost as if, you know, the, the, the majority of the people say, well, I'm going to pray about it, and 
God's got it, and almost as if God is sitting up on his throne in heaven, and he's going to swoop down and fix their individual problems for them. And they all they have to do is just pray and let it go. I don't believe that that's the case. I believe that, yes, you pray. Yes, you involve the Holy Spirit or the Creator or whoever it is that, that you pray to. You invoke that power, but the Creator has given each of us a power within ourselves, a, a little piece of him, if you will, and charged us with taking control of our own individual destiny. And as long as it's in line with the divine order, We've got a little bit of um, background noise. Okay, I, I don't know if you, you caught my last piece, but I, I said I, I think it's a blessed endeavor as long as it's divinely guided and a part of what we know to be the Creator's plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to jump in for a second. You mentioned very briefly that you were, <laughs> excuse me for laughing, but the last time I saw you, I remember you, one of the, the, the things that you said to me was, Anthony, it's okay, I'm not the police anymore. <laughs> 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 you, you mentioned to me, you, you mentioned that to me, uh, I guess because you, you, you sent some, some some standoffishness in, in my in my approach to you because we have always been rather close and have always had a pretty strong bond with each other. But what type of police were you when you were in Atlanta, if, if you don't mind sharing that with the listening audience? I think that's kind of interesting. Okay. Um, of my 11 years or so with the Atlanta Police Department, uh, I've, I've had several different uh, positions or assignments, if you will. Um, I think the one that you're probably most interested in is when I was a part of the uh, Red Dog Squad, which uh, in Georgia is, um, or in Atlanta in particular, is a street-level drug task force uh, kind of made and built towards um, removing drugs from our community. Uh, what does that, street that level. stand for? What what does that abbreviation uh, stand for? Red Dog. Uh, Red Dog. Red Dog was something that uh, Chief Eldrin Bell came up with, and, and it's the uh, acronym means uh, or stands for Run Every Drug Dealer Out of Georgia. Which Whoa. Is, uh, pretty, yeah, it's a pretty uh, broad statement and pretty ambitious. But the goal was that I mean, at, at that time especially, um, there was lots of drugs on the streets, and there was lots of violence associated with those drugs. And the uh, police stance was, we don't want it on our streets, and we're going to be aggressive about making sure that it doesn't uh, stay on our streets and doesn't proliferate. So um, that task force, and and we normally rode uh, three to four guys in a car and and kind of focused strictly on the areas that were high drug traffic, uh, known drug areas, and that uh, kind of thing. So, uh, And I did that for about... Uh, almost five years or so, or somewhere around five years before leaving that and going to the policing or the uh, community policing type of uh, assignment. So you, what what part did you play in that as far as um, your leadership yeah. is concerned? Well, uh, back in those days with the police department, I was um, I was a, a team leader, so I had a team. There were 
myself and two to three other uh, guys or girls that, that rode in, a, in one car, and, and we kind of focused on uh, trying to take out the drug dealers and, and make good cases on them that were going to try and hopefully get them off the street. And the goal was to change their approach to life, that is, not make them not want to continue to deal in the violence and the drugs and everything that was associated with that whole lifestyle. Um, sometimes have, it worked, sometimes it didn't. I, I mean, I so, have to imagine that that changed your life because you literally had to live that. I mean, you slept, woke up, and that was on your mind, I take it. That that became what? more than just a job. Yeah, and, and, and you're right. Um, it, it was kind of consuming in that, you know, you couldn't really just be all about what you were uh, thinking was important because that became important. Um, the cases that you made, you wanted to make good cases and, you know, you wanted to make sure that you were upholding the law, that you were protecting people, and that, um, but that at the same time, you wanted to make sure that your family was safe and right. you didn't pull your family into that, and which was, you know, kind of a hard thing. And, and there were times when um, I recall, you know, different people would end up having to kind of take steps to safeguard their families because of what they were doing as police officers on the Red Dog Squad. But, you know, it, it, was, it was part of the job. It was, you know, a particularly uh, focused group of guys, that guys and girls that worked on a particular problem of the community. What I found, though, um, after being there probably for so long, was that after a few years, I was locking up the same guys and girls for the same thing. Um, I, I, one case in particular, I remember I locked up a guy for, you know, you know, selling drugs. And two years later, I ended up locking that same guy up for the same offense. And oh. it, it, it almost like a light bulb went off in my head that, you know, this, what are we really doing here? If I, I took him out of the game for a couple of years, but he's right back in the game. And it's not that important to him that he's not, you know, that it's not important enough for him to stop doing what he's doing. So maybe the whole prison piece that he just went through didn't register with him. Either that or there's something that is not clicking to tell him that he can do something else. And it, around that time I, I requested a transfer because I, did, I no longer felt like I was being effective. Mm-hmm. All prior to that, I felt that I was being effective because I was able to get people off the streets and, you know, collect their drugs and they didn't get to sell those drugs. And, you know, so, you know, there's some success in that, but it was, it was pretty short-lived when, when you see the same people coming back doing the same thing. Now, would so you, I, uh, what, what kind of solution do you think there could be? Because it sounds to me like when they get out of uh, out of prison, they go back to the same environment because that's all they know. Uh, you know uh, what? What can be? I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. What's the question? Oh no. Uh, but it seems as though that you come back to their environment, to their family, because that's all they know, and then they're back immersed in that same situation. What do you think would be a solution? Any type of programs? Because it's almost like you don't want to. People don't want to be separated from their kin, but they need to, you know, think outside of the box. 
per se, you know, just like Mr. Muhammad was saying, I can, yes, I can, but thinking out of that box. Well, I, I think the, the biggest part of this is what, and, and when you're talking about people who are, um, they, they've been to prison and they get out and then they come back to prison. Mm-hmm. I think even before, even both before a person is in the in the criminal justice system, and as well once they're part of the criminal justice system, there has to be at some some point they have to have a mental change. If if anything is going to change, the mind has to change first. Um, so what I what I've uh, recognized is often people that end up going back into the system. Mentally, they haven't changed anything, so they're still thinking under the same set of thoughts they've had before, subconsciously and consciously. And more importantly, they haven't either been exposed to things or haven't realized that they can mentally elevate themselves out of the situations that they're in. And so it goes back to faith without works is dead, and you had made a good comment about that, getting their mind right. Exactly, and and, that, and and it's it's very true. What what happens is you have to first change your mind, and if you can get your mind in a positive place, focus on positive actions, and then put some physical work behind that. That is, put some effort and some actions behind that. Then you can actually begin to change who you are, what you're capable of, and where you're going to be. But if you Sometimes people will change their mind. They'll they'll get their mind in a positive place, and that's a great start. But until there's work that or there's actions that put with that positive mind, they're very, they're going to slip back to the behaviors that they know and have you know, been a part of for a longer period of time. So it's, it's to me it's, it's tremendously important that they first either through exposure or through self-development or through self-learning, through someone pulling their coattail and spending some time with them and mentoring them, they come to the realization that they are, the, they really do have their own destiny in their hands with their mind. And, and I say it because that's where it all starts. If you can't see it in your mind, then it can't happen. Whether you whether or not you believe you can or whether or not you believe you can't, in both cases, you're absolutely right. If you believe, you can make something happen, but it takes the action. But if you don't believe, you won't make anything happen. So it's totally up to you. God gives us all the right to choose. That's powerful. It's up to us to, to realize that that's what we have. So. Now, when when did you choose to, um, you know, another thing about you, you have been in the military and held some very prestigious positions. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and how? Did, at what point did you choose from growing up wh- what direction you were headed? Well, I, the majority of my family has been in the military. Also, the males have been in the military at one time or another or on one level or another. And uh, I, I decided that I wanted to be in the military way back when I was in high school. Um, and as I, uh, actually after I graduated high school, 
I went right into the military. I went right in uh, and uh, enlisted and did my time. Did, did about four years active Air Force. And uh, at the end of my time, I got out and uh, got into the Air National Guard. Oh. And spent my time there. But um, during that same time frame, I had a friend who was in the Army National Guard who was uh, who told me that I needed to join the Army and I could be an officer. Was this at in the, the 90s? Time, I didn't believe him. This was, no, this was actually the 80s. Okay. Uh, so, long story short, I, I changed from the Air Force to the Army, went through OCS, and got a commission, uh, and became a second lieutenant, a military police second lieutenant, which kind of right. complemented what I was doing on the civilian side because I was a police officer. Right. Uh, during that time, uh, I was able to advance, and but right around the corner, there was the uh, desert storm that was kind of on the horizon. And during that time, I was a I was a lieutenant and a, a platoon leader, uh, and because they liked or needed a lot of military police, my uh, unit was one that was called first. So we went over to say the desert storm and. Uh, both Desert Shield and then Desert Storm, and were able to come back. We didn't, fortunately, we didn't lose anyone uh, to casualties, although we did have some incidents, uh, but we didn't lose anyone to casualties. How do you, uh, you know, as a leader, how do you manage in a situation like that where you, you go out, you have a mission, you have to lead them? How, how do you explain that to them? How do you encourage them and also console all at the same time? Well, you know, one of the most important things in that type of leadership is that, one, you know, you've you received a mission, and you know what that mission is, and then you can take the mission and kind of restate it and put it in a format and in language that everyone below you understands. They know what's important, and, and mind you, everyone has been trained for the job that they're doing. So that's not really the issue. You, they already have been trained, and they kind of know what they should be doing, but the mission is something that changes all the time. So, you know, there are some particulars about that that may or may not be familiar. So it's just kind of important for the leader to understand what the mission is, be able to manipulate it through language and share it with all of the subordinates in a way that they can understand and connect with and mm-hmm. most importantly, they have to understand that that leader has their best interest at at heart. That that leader is not going to have them do something that he wouldn't willingly do himself. He's not going to push them out to uh, take the enemy fire, and he's going to be back uh, at the command post drinking Kool-Aid. So oh. if if they understand that. If they know that this guy is with us, he has a family, he wants us all to go home at the end of the day, then they're going to align with that as well. Now, obviously they have to believe that that leader is confident. Otherwise, everything else is out the window. Oh, 
Yeah. Oh, that's something. So now you uh kinda going into you know, we use the quote of uh behind enemy lines. You just wanted to dispel a, a myth on that, what it means to be behind enemy lines. Yeah. Well here here's the thing with that. Um you hear behind enemy lines. In reality, in today's environment, there's no such thing as a particular line where the good guys are on one side and the bad guys are on the other side. In, in truth, especially in the technology environment that we have today, and we, you can see some of it with uh, the present ongoings with the uh, sharing and spillage of uh, classified information that, that is real popular in the, the media today. There mm-hmm. are no lines. We, you know, the only lines are the mentality and the thoughts of the people that are sharing one belief system or one type of uh, position as opposed to another type of belief system or position. So I'm, I'm, I know the, the it's real easy to say, hey, behind enemy lines, as if this is... World War Two or World War One, where there's a you know big trench system that's kind of dug out, and everybody's in the trenches, and <laughs> yes. the guys on one side are you know the bad guys, and we are the good guys, of course. But that's not the the kind of environment that we live in today. Mm-hmm. There is no clearly defined line that says, "Hey, those are the bad guys over there," because the bad guys are on both sides. They you know it's it, it it There's almost sounds like uh, when you when you explain with the Pan African Orthodox Christian Church about kind of challenging the beliefs, you know, um, that there's a little bit of truth for both sides. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and and to even kind of go back to that same analogy of the enemy lines piece. You know, the same truth, the same facts and circumstances are there for both sides. But the way they view those facts and circumstances is totally different based on the lens that they view those facts and circumstances through. For example, the the good guys are saying, hey, we have to eliminate the bad guys because if we don't, the bad guys are going to come across the lines and they're going to eliminate our way of life because they disagree with it. While the bad guys are in this uh, situations are saying we have to eliminate those other guys over there because they're trying to spread their way of life and if they're successful, then our way of life ends. Oh, and so they're both it, right. I, I see what you're exactly. saying. So yeah. there's, I mean, there, there's truth in both of those, but mm-hmm. based on your point of view, your truth is different than the other guy's truth. But it's the same set of facts and circumstances. Hmm. So with with all of this in mind, you've made your, your your way up in the ranks. Can you tell us about that experience and you know the the surprises along the way? Don't don't be so humble. Don't be so humble. Uh, go ahead and let let everybody know about your your, your being a war hero. Don't don't be yes. so humble. We do want to, we want to know it. <laughs> it, it. It's been a long journey. I'll tell you that. Um, it's been a long journey. Um, my I've been in the military at various branches, positions, and levels, and all of that uh, for about 35 years now. 
and I've been enlisted. I've been a junior officer. I've been a, a middle grade officer, field grade officer. Now I'm uh, a senior officer. I'm a, a colonel, and I'm a military police. Um, and it's been a wonderful ride getting to where I am now. Um, it's not always uh, an easy ride because anyone who's in the military, especially if you're in for any length of time, you've had to make some uh, choices and some decisions that may have um, put you at odds with family and friends and sometimes the community. But you made those choices because you had already raised your hand and, and signed your name way long ago when you volunteered to do the job. And that's where I am now. I, I volunteer to do what I'm doing. Um, I'm near the end of my career. Um, and the job that I do now is, is a wonderful job because I get to actually integrate Army National Guard units throughout um, Central Asia as they uh, work uh, the missions that they've been assigned to work. And it's, it's, it's really a wonderful thing because I get, get a chance to integrate and, and kind of deal with soldiers again, and that's always a good thing for a leader to do. It, it, sometimes you're in command position, and then sometimes you get to be in staff positions, but regardless of whether you're in command or staff, you always have a mission, and that mission is important. Once you know what it is, you go about trying to figure out how to best do that and how to integrate your team into making it all successful with them because nothing gets done without the team. Nothing gets done without that guy who's on the ground uh, getting dirty, making it happen every day. So that's, that's what it's all about. It's, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Before you, we go you, into the music, hold, hold on one second, Brandy. Before we go into the music, um, can you can you speak on some of the countries that you have been to um, throughout your 35 years in the military? Because it, the list is pretty long, even up to a couple of weeks ago, you just came back into the United States. Yeah, um, just uh, recently I was in uh, uh, Kuwait, which I go over periodically based on because of the assignment that I have now. Uh, assigned to Third um, Army Arsenal, which is Army Central, uh, Army Central Command, which is a part. They're actually the Army um, component of Central Command, which is the uh, uh, Global Combatant Command for the area of Central Asia, which is uh, uh, really about 20 countries: um, Iraq, Iran, all those countries over there. The the stands, the Afghanistan, Kazakhstan. Uh, Turkmenistan, all those areas, that's all under that same uh, regional command. So uh, I, I period, periodically um, get to those countries uh, just as a matter of making sure that um, the soldiers and units that I service have what they need to do their job. And that's important because often, you know, units and soldiers get sent to do jobs and things have changed since they since the mission first surfaced, and they may not actually have all the tools they need to be successful. So you have to get out and you know touch base with them, talk with them, see what they got going on, and see what will help them uh, be better in doing the job that they've used to ask them to do. So that's kind of the the region that I've been in. Uh, now and, and I continue to travel there uh, on a periodic basis. 
Now, I had a question. Are you able to um, speak on maybe a past mission uh, and, and what that was, if you could think of anything that would be radio, uh, I guess, friendly, because I'm not sure if you're able to do that or not, but also was curious about 9-11. And what kind? What 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 can be a mission? Can you give us an example? Well, really, anything what, what can be a mission. But, or um, an example of one that you had. Okay, um, going back to uh, 9/11 and that period. Um, at that time, I was a, a major military police, um, and I was assigned to a, a rear operations center, which is a small element that kind of connects with much higher headquarters to give them some expertise and some, some drill down into some particular areas. Uh, my, my area was the military police plan, so I kind of planned out activities that the military police should do or be focused on and make recommendations to the higher command. Well, during this time, uh, when 9-11 occurred, I was actually in Georgia and my unit got activated to um, deploy. So in October of uh, 2011, uh, we actually deployed. And in November of 2011, I was in Afghanistan. Um, of particular interest was uh, there wasn't that many soldiers or military personnel on the ground in Afghanistan back then. So we were uh, part of the uh, small contingent that was there. And um, they eventually came to a term and said it looked like this was going to be an ongoing uh, uh, campaign, OEF, or Operation Enduring Freedom, one for the first uh, wave, two for the second wave, and they put another number each time there was another wave or a release in place. So I was actually a part of OEF-1. And in during that time frame, uh, there were some things that kind of went down. And part of our charter back then was to reopen the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan. It had been closed for many, many years. And we were able to open that, but it was, it was a challenge because there were the – the, the embassy had been really just almost almost destroyed. Uh, so we brought in uh, uh, Marines and, you know, lots of other pieces and parts to make sure that we had the right kind of force package and the right kind of support package to uh, reopen it. And fortunately, we were able to reopen that embassy, I think, somewhere right around, right after Christmas, I think, of 2011, we were able to reopen the embassy. And uh, okay. so that was kind of a, a, a good thing. And so that right, so you were um you were able to complete that mission as um you were saying. Yeah, the task force was. The, the it, task it wasn't force. just me. This was absolutely the task force's uh mission. I just had a part of it. That's wonderful. Okay. Wow. Yeah, so Anthony he, he's a serious he's a serious individual, Brandy. He is being very, very uh cool and, and, and humble about uh, the things that you ask him, but he is a very serious individual, and if you were to see him, you would think he was some type of playboy out of Manhattan or something like that uh, as well put together as he is. 
Um, but he's being very cool. But this is a very serious individual that you have on the phone with you right now. Um, I want to go into the music. Sweet Lou, you know me. I love the name. Give us give us some, some insight on what you're doing with this jazz and uh, all of that stuff right about now. Okay. Um, you know, there's, there's usually, and this is probably across the board for everyone, there's kind of, there's, there's several different personas that, that we have there. We project who we want to be um, accepted as, and then there's another level, who we really are, and then there's who we want to be. So I've always wanted to be a, a musician, and I kind of naturally come upon that by family full of musicians and singers and whatnot. So uh, some time ago, and this is probably at least a decade or more, I, I as a part of my singing, I uh, was singing with several uh, local bands in uh, the Atlanta area, uh, R&B primarily, um, and we do shows here and there, uh, some of the local clubs. And as I was telling you, Brandy, a little bit earlier, one of the one of the times that I went into this one club, which I had gone in several times, and most mm-hmm. of the times I did a lot of leads. So um, the owner of the club, during intermission, asked me, uh, so uh, when are you going to bring your band in? And uh, let me let me sign you up for a couple of days. And Look at the at time, that. I didn't have a band. You know, I was I was doing things for everybody else's band, but I knew that. I wasn't necessarily really doing the kind of music that I wanted to do I, because I wanted to, to do jazz, real mm-hmm. jazz, not something that somebody changed or called jazz just because that would get them through the door. But jazz music is really, it, it's, it's really African-American classical music. And many oh. people don't understand that. Many people think that if it's American music, it's jazz music not the case. American, or jazz is African-American classical music. So knowing that, I wanted to focus my time on doing that kind of music. So um, since she opened up her calendar and said, hey, let me put you down, I took the opportunity and called together some of the jazz players that I know and, you know, had known for some years and we put together the band and we uh, logged in as uh, Sweet Lou Quintet, and when we did that first show, the, there was standing room only, and actually they they had to turn some people around because there wasn't enough room in the club for the, for people to come in, and we had a wonderful time. Everybody wow. had a, 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 a great experience, and a lot of the people that were there were there because they had heard me do a lot of R and B and the songs and, and things that were, you know, popular dance tunes, but they heard me do jazz that night. And many of them had never really heard jazz sing. In fact, I had several people come up to me and say, I didn't know that you could sing jazz. I thought jazz was just this or jazz was just that. But in in reality jazz is improvised music. That's just really what it is. Take the okay. you know popular things or take classical things, opera, whatever, and improvise it and turn it into something that it wasn't when you first start started it. So 
um, it, it was a wonderful thing, and, and we continued to sell out. Um, so some, I guess a, a few years later, we uh, decided to go in the studio and cut a CD, and we were successful in that attempt and uh, did real well. In fact, the CD is still getting airplay. Um, actually hit the jazz chart, and with my uh, people sent me the, the jazz charts for that. And I think that was... Um, 20, I, I guess it was uh, 2010, no, 2011 is when it was. Uh, they sent the, the jazz charts, and I was, our quintet was up with uh, Dave Rubick quintet and Cassandra Wilson and, you know, some, some major players, and it was just, it was a good experience. And let me kind of backtrack a little bit. I think earlier I may have said 2011 when I was talking about the uh, Operation Enduring Freedom piece. It, that was actually 9-11. Uh, oh, so, okay. Yeah. But it, it's all been a great experience. And, and so you, you know, we continue to do great things now with the music. I, you know, it's amazing to me that you made a shift. Someone told you, um, you know, hey, so when are you coming out with your project? When are you bringing your band? You said, oh, oh, wow. You know, <laughs> and then you go and you, you, you make your phone calls. Hey, can you come on out? Uh, let's let's go ahead and practice. Uh, we got a bass, you got a, a drummer, and you just made it happen and turned everything around and was able to sell out. That is a great testimony. Well, it was it was really wonderful, it, and it really was. I mean, I, um, we were talking earlier, and sometimes you just need somebody to kind of tickle you just a little bit in the right yeah. way to to turn you. You know, I. It, this is where I wanted to be all along. All but along. I was continuing to, you know, fuel other people's dreams. That's you right. Because right. literally I was a front man for several bands, and, you know, they enjoyed it. But when and when I thought back, when, when I joined those bands, it was with the condition that I would be able to work on my own uh, music with the band. And those things never happened. But it I never happened. To, mm-hmm. Exactly continue to be the front man for their band. So um, it was it was just the right time, and it was, you know, the right level of tickling that uh, kind of pushed me on out to go ahead and start doing what I should have been doing anyway. Mm-hmm. And so right now, um, what what is your current project? And uh, you have a CD out, and where can people find that? Um, you can you can find my CD on uh, cdbaby.com. Uh, just put in search for Sweet Lou Quintet. That's S-W-E-E-T-L-U Quintet. Um, and and also at, at my website www.sweetloumusic.com. That's S-W-E-E-T-L-U Music.com. Either one of those. Um, and you could uh, get the CD, uh, get the singles. Uh, we're in the actually putting together the uh, format for the next uh, CD project now, and uh, uh, developing a, a tour list for 2014. Uh, working on getting uh, into the Berlin Jazz Festival and uh, some gigs in Nice, France, on the backside of that before coming back to the U.S. Oh, wonderful. Congratulations and good luck with that. 
Great, thank you. So what is the sound like? What is your sound like when you sit down, um, you know, at the round table with your teammates or your, your players? Um, wh- how do you create this next single, this next album? What what do you think you're going for? Well, um, the first CD, I wanted to pay tribute to lots, lots of the great writers and musicians that I think still don't get enough credit for the tremendous work that they've done. So it was entitled Tribute to Greatness. And on that CD, I did, you know, some Miles Davis, did some uh, Freddie Hubbard, did, um, uh, uh, you know, great players that, that are acknowledged as, as great players, but I kind of, you know, put my twist on that. And then I, I did uh, just two original tunes on it as well. This okay. next project that we're, we're working is it'll have probably four to five uh, originals and and a few um, numbers that are, are probably cover tunes that are popular, but we kind of put our own spin on whatever we do. So, um, and and how we kind of get to developing those things is someone has a concept for the song whether right. it be the original or whether it be, you know, a, a, a cover that we're uh, interpreting. And we play around with it for a while um, and talk through the ideas. We practice it, play it a couple times, and then we, we'll sleep on it and then, you know, go to the next one. And then we'll come back uh, after things have had, kind of had a chance to marinate a little bit. And things are always a little bit different. And, and we'll do that two or three times. And then finally get to something that everybody really feels good about. And then we're ready to, to go forward with it, either playing it uh, in a uh, venue or actually recording it. Okay, okay. Wow. This it's is... a collaborative effort, though, absolutely. Yeah. And in music, it has to be collaboration. Otherwise, it's not going to be very good. Right. Right, because, you know, you, you may be thinking, this is awesome, but someone else is saying, well, if we add this, it'll be even better. I right. wouldn't even think of that. <laughs> right. Exactly. It, it, it's all about the give and take. Mm-hmm. All about it, the give and take with the music. So when did you discover that you can actually sing? Oh, jeez. I've been singing all of my life, literally. Um, I remember um, being three or four uh, at church. Of course, all black people start singing at church, right? Right. Um <laughs> Uh, and and uh, my mom teaching me a song that we're going to sing that I'm going to lead the whole church in. And I, we got there to the church. It was kind of like church anniversary or something like that, you know, some big thing where everybody comes out. You were and, a leader starting at three or four. See, you've been leading yeah. since you were born. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. So uh, they, they put me, you know, I'm, I'm I'm there with the mic and, you know, People are everybody. Nobody can see me because I'm so short. And then they put me up on the on the offering table, you know, oh. <laughs> right in the middle. So I'm singing the, the song and whatnot. From there on, it was like just you know, everybody was always, hey, when are you gonna sing again? You know, so it just kind of curved. But again, that was you know something that really came to me from my both my mom and my dad who were singers, and my family in general. Cause Music is just a part of who we are. Okay. You could not have a, a gathering of any type 
for any length of time, and somebody's not going to start singing, and then everybody's going to join in. So now it, it, I'm coming to the question now. Out of all of those years, no one put you on the spot. Did you ever sing in the military? <laughs> I did in the military, but yes. not for the military. No, um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've never sang for the military. Okay. And and really, once I really, you know, start kicking with, with, with my, my band and whatnot, I, I really tried to keep my jazz identity and my military identity separate. Mm-hmm. And most of the, the primary reason that I did that is because I was in a leadership position. And exactly. I didn't want anyone to in any way feel that I was doing something that um, was coercive or um, I was telling soldiers or people that they had to come to my show or, or else there would be consequences. So That's I just kept point. completely separate. Mm-hmm. Now I'm kind of at the point where I don't quite have to worry about that anymore. I'm, right. Again, as I said, I'm kind of past the, a lot of things that I'm, I'm nearing retirement, so I don't think that's nearly as much of an issue as it could have been for me before. Right, right. Yeah. And what instrument do you play? I play drums, although... I don't play what, well, let me just put it like this. I sing much better than I play. So that's why, <laughs> so that's why I, I, uh, there were, there were uh, bands that I would play for, but I didn't let them know that I sang. So when I start singing, it's kind of like, oh, wow, we didn't know that. But usually when I start singing, they don't want me to play anymore. They'll, they'll get somebody else to play and just let me sing, that kind of thing. So... If I didn't want that to happen, I couldn't open my mouth. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Brandy, we're approaching a uh, five-minute mark. If if you have any other questions that you want to ask or if any other callers that are on the line have a question, press one, and uh, we'll be as quick as possible with the questions. Um, if not, Brandy, uh, we have about five minutes left, and I want to end with the commercial. That way we'll satisfy um the sponsor's uh, obligations. Okay. So, yeah, I, I, th- I think this is marvelous. You've mentioned uh, where they can find your information. How can they follow you? I know you have your website. Can you repeat that one more time? Yes. Um, www.sweetlumusic.com. S-W-E-E-T-L-U music.com. Or on TV Baby, just put in a search for... Uh, Sweet Lou Quintet, and the CD is Tribute to Greatness. Um, Pick it up, it's hot, and more more great music coming to you in the very near future. Okay, and the last last question would be, how you did that show? Uh, How how would you advise someone who is putting together their own show and they want to be successful? You know, because uh, sometimes people have shows and they only have ten people there. What What do you suggest to sell out a show? What What should I you think do? More than anything else, you have to get out and engage people. You okay. have to get out. You know, put together your handbill, and and you know, I think today most people want to rely on Facebook and the uh, social media more than anything else. 
that's great. Do that. But don't neglect getting out and putting a handbill in people's hands and tell them, I'd really appreciate it if you come to the show. Uh, mm. and do that for businesses. Do it for individuals. It, you know, saturate the area that you're going to be playing in. Because there okay. are some people that, you know, don't know that you're doing what you're doing. But if they know, at least they have the choice to come and see you or not. Right. Give them a choice by, by doing that. Because you probably don't know a majority of the people in that area of the, whatever the venue is. So, you know, go old-fashioned, do the, you know, shake their hands, tell them who you are, what you do, and ask them to come out and support you. Again, That's like wonderful. I said, don't neglect the, the social media stuff, but absolutely do that hand-to-hand engagement stuff. Okay. So there you have it. you got to really get, get have interaction with people in person. That's what it is. It yeah. boils right back down to relations. Relationships. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Now, Anthony, did you have any other questions before we close out? Not at all. Just uh, want to show some gratitude for him taking out time. I know your schedule is very busy, and I appreciate you sitting uh, and doing this for the past couple of hours. Much appreciation. I look forward to seeing you sometime soon, and uh, we're going to check out the music. I wish we had something to, to play right now, but in the process of, uh, you know, all the things that go on on a day-to-day basis, I forgot to ask you for a sample of your music. But we will um, get some from you and make it available on the station so that we can use okay. it um, for, for for exposure for you. Great. Well, I, I would like to say thank you for inviting me. In. I, I really am impressed with uh, the quality of your show, the quality of your staff. Brandy, both you and Anthony, I think you're doing a great job. And I really enjoyed the, the prior segment as well as the show that um, I guess occurred last week with the gentleman in uh, China. So right. thank you very much. Yeah. And keep doing what Reggie you do. Martin. Absolutely. Keep doing what you do. Thank okay. you so much. We are so proud to have you, and uh, we'll be keeping in touch, okay? Okay. Great. Thanks Absolutely. A lot. Absolutely. Okay. We're going go, to go to a quick commercial break, and if we have time, um, we'll end the show. But for now, Brandy, if you want to say um, your closing remarks, that would be great in case we get cut short after the commercial goes. Right. You know, again, faith without works is dead uh you know this is the rook show that you're listening to your host anthony king and myself brandy jackson make sure you follow us at the rook show and also like us on facebook so glad to have you if you ever want to call in don't forget the number is 213-943-3618 looking forward to seeing you and hearing from you all go ahead brandy I'm, i'm bringing it in slowly And we'll hear from you next Sunday. Have a good one. All right. Thank you, Brandy. Have a good one, everybody. For more information, give us a call at 631-399-0149. That's 631-399-0149. The Fluffs present the alphabet. Now found in paperback. Sporting a five-star rating on Amazon.com. Sessions, fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Moon 107.
7 is an online retail store featuring women's and men's clothing at the gift shop. The woman's shop features stylish tunics, suits, and accessories and offers the well-dressed woman an outlet to find the perfect gift for self or for someone else. The men's shop offers classy French cuffed shirts for the well-dressed man. The gift shop offers organic skin, hair, bath accessories, and inspirational music imported from Africa, India, and Asia, as well as jewelry and accessories. Moon 107, fashions and gifts that bring out the best in you. Don't forget to visit moon107.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.